Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June 21st, 2021. Sometimes it's interesting to do back-to-back interviews on a similar subject with very different kind of perspectives. Earlier today, I did an interview with the Harvard academic Martin Pushner. Uh, he has an interesting book out, Literature for a Changing Planet. Um, he argues that we need to tell new stories about our relationship with the Earth if we're to avoid climate catastrophe. Um, I don't think anyone would necessarily agree with, disagree with that, although stories are complicated. They're not always seen to be complicated. Pushner believes that the stories about the environment are fairly straightforward. And we also did a show earlier um, last month with uh, two uh, environmentalists, Kerry Arsenault and Bathsheba Demuth, both highly accomplished writers and historians about how to tell stories. They have a new environmental stories. They have a new unit called the studio at Brown University. But both, I think, what Arsenault and Demuth and um, uh, and Pushner all argue, that telling stories about the environment are, if not straightforward, certainly there are certain stories that should be told and certain stories that shouldn't be told and that stories can be told in a certain kind of way. What's interesting is that my guest today tells a story uh, about the environment, which is much more complex than one would think at first sight. When I first received this book, Tree Thieves, Crime and Survival in North America's Woods by my guest, Lindsay Borgon, I assumed it would simply be a book about bad people who go into the forest and steal trees. But her narrative, her story is a lot more complicated than that. I'm thrilled that Lindsay is joining us uh, Lindsay, welcome. You are somewhere in the interior of British Columbia, although you're not in a tree, as we joked earlier. You're no, indoors. Am I doing justice, uh, Lindsay, to your book, Tree Thieves? It's a, it's a complex, sophisticated n- narrative. I'm not sure if I would call it post-environmental, but it certainly doesn't fit into the traditional narratives. Is that fair? Yeah, I think it is, actually. Thank you very much for uh, for that kind intro. I think you've you really hit on something that I was trying to do, uh, which was to complicate the narrative a little bit um, and to kind of show the reader how um, often our our split instance or our split thought on a crime happening might not always be the whole story. So the book uh, is a narrative about timber poaching. Uh, You work also for Canadian Geographic. I think the book was in part sponsored by that. Uh, The title in the Canadian Geographic, I think it's uh, featured from the book, is The Secretive Crime Decimating North America's Forests. Um, Crime might actually be in inverted commas. But what exactly (laughs) is timber poaching, Lindsay? Yeah, Yeah. timber poaching um, is just that. So it is illegal taking of trees, usually one by one, from forests that are protected or that have been put aside for uses other than logging. 
Um, and it's you, what makes it poaching is that it's usually done by individual people or small groups of people uh, rather than large scale illegal logging, which is often kind of a more organized and concerted effort. So poaching has a long history, both in the United States and in Europe, um, mm -hmm. often mytho mythologized in, in populist language of poor, disempowered people striking back against landowners, against the wealthy and the powerful. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of that narrative in your book, Tree Thieves, isn't there? There is, yeah. And actually, that was um, really what motivated me to write the book once I started doing research into it. So I had heard about this 800-year-old cedar that was poached on Vancouver Island. And I thought at the time that I would start doing interviews with park rangers and uh, kind of follow the investigators and get into kind of the nitty gritty of the financials and, and the, the supply chain and all of that. And it very quickly showed itself to me to be a cultural story and a story rooted in history. Um, and, and that history was really complicated and it had a lot to do with identity and work and how people exist in the environment. Lindsay, I probably fall into the category of the the, the, the typically, uh, shall we say, middle or upper class environmentalist, um, and uh, so you can use me as your as your model <laughs> for criticizing. For me, the destruction of old things, particularly of old trees, um, suggests a particular kind of criminality. I wonder why that is. Would you, how would you interpret it? Yeah, it's interesting that you that you say that because I think there are well, there certainly are sources in the book that that compare redwoods um, not so much to uh, other types of wildlife that are poached like rhino or elephant, but also to antiquities uh, that are traded and and old art and cathedrals and and history that is it's, kind it's of the more than marbles argument. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, I think you're right that when we that we when we start hearing these narratives about how old the trees are, and it's so impressive, especially in North America, where we don't have those layers of of ancient history in the settler context, uh, you know, that you might find in Europe, um, you start feeling a little bit attached to the fact that these are what our continent has that takes us all the way back three thousand, four thousand years. Um, and taking that feels uh, kind of like, in some sense, almost like a like a senseless, pointless crime, even though there's very real financial motivation. How do we? Th and and, and you're, you're you're you seem to be in the business of at least implicitly deconstructing a lot of conventional middle class environmentalists. How do? we, and I use that word carefully, how do we see the environment that might indeed be wrong? What narrative are you challenging? I think the narrative that I wanted to challenge was that, I think there were a few actually, and, and one of them was that when this tree, I actually went back onto the, onto social media and when this, when, uh, when I was researching the book, just to see kind of how that, that original poaching that I had learned about had been covered because it was many years before. And there were there were lots of shares uh, from from people saying, you know, the people that do this are scum, what trash, you know, uh, meth heads do this kind of really kind of huge, hugely blanketed negative statements. Um, 
and so I wanted to, I wanted to counter that narrative. And I also, um, and, and to kind of look into why we might want to brush off this crime in, in such a way like that. Um, and the other one that I wanted to dig into in terms of conservation history and how we relate to the environment was that, that conservation that puts trees and closes them behind a, a curtain of no use at all might not be the best way forward. And that is a that is a form of conservation that is relatively new and that really was spurred and put forward by, like you're saying, these kind of middle class, often urban folks that that became very involved in the conservation movement in the early to mid 20th century. I mean, it all brings to mind a guy like Teddy Roosevelt. Um, mm -hmm. We did a show with John Reed, Why We Need to mm -hmm. Save Big Forests. He has a book out, very nice guy, Evergreen, Saving Big Forests to Save the Planet. I'm assuming that's the conventional narrative. We also did a show with Tony Hiss, who who believes that the way to save the environment is to, is to literally protect 50% of American land. Mm -hmm. Are you arguing against that? Are you, or you, are you saying that it's an oversimplistic way of thinking about our environmental crisis? I think it's, I think you're, you're right. It's an oversimplistic, or you're right in suggesting that that's what I think, that it's an oversimplistic way of deciding to solve this problem. I think that we've actually seen in the global South when, when uh, Western organizations and, and conservation projects uh, have been applied there, how that doesn't work and how communities, you know, poaching still happens uh, in areas where there's great biodiversity loss and we're trying to counter it by just saying no more use. That, that's actually called the fortress model of conservation. The idea being that you, that you turn, that you surround these important areas of biodiversity, like a fortress to protect them and you keep people out. Um, and that, that just has proven not to work socially, culturally, um, and environmentally in the end, because people are motivated to get to those resources no matter what. But isn't that the thinking behind national parks? I mean, that was mm -hmm. Teddy Roosevelt's greatest contribution, although I'm not sure if you would necessarily think it's such a great contribution. I do, yeah. No, and I don't want anyone to think that I, that I think the national parks are a bad thing and that we should Lift. Isn't that what national parks are? They're, they're, they're not allowed. I mean, people are allowed to go and visit, but there's, there's no, you're not allowed to build, you're not allowed to cut the trees mm -hmm. there. There is actually, um, so they do actually do selective logging on national parks land. Um, it just is, is done in a different way uh, than you might, for instance, on forest service land in the US or crown lands up here in, in Canada, where you might have kind of private companies leasing from the government to go in and do relatively large scale logging. That doesn't happen on national parks land, but they do still log for management purposes. Um, and I'm not arguing that we shouldn't have national parks, but more that we can learn from the history of how they were instated and take away from that ways that more that are more inclusive and include more people in their management um, moving forward. Lindsay, tell tell the story of the, of tree thieves. Tell me what you write about in the book, who these people are, and why at least your narrative um, is more complicated than what what one would expect in 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 a book about the environment about people who steal trees. Yeah, well, I think um, 
what I really wanted to do with the book was explore the history, which I do in the first third, and then to spend time getting to know uh, contemporary modern poachers that um, kind of continue to poach trees in the Pacific Northwest. It is a huge problem there. The Forest Service uh, in a couple years ago had a, had a release that said that it's a problem in every national forest that this happens. There's poaching in redwoods. And, and so I really wanted to get a sense of who is doing that. Um, and so first of all, that is actually kind of a, a unique element in the book is that poachers have not often been interviewed for stories about them. And I do spend quite a bit of time getting to know burl poachers in particular. Um, and so a burl is a growth uh, on, on any sort of tree really, but they're particularly valuable when they come from redwood or Douglas fir because they become very large. And the wood that's in them is is very beautiful. It's, it's these kind of bulbous growths that come off the trunk of the tree. And when you cut into them, uh, the wood is very smooth. It has no knots. Um, and, and it can be used to create kind of much larger uh, items than kind of a carved bowl. You can, you can do tables from them. You can uh, really carve them into much larger things like statues. And so there is a market for those. And, and I had in my research, I continually read kind of about a, a few cases. And I knew that I wanted to get to know those poachers, which is what I ended up doing for the book. I, I spent time in California before COVID and then uh, continued my interviewing with them throughout COVID, just trying to get a sense of their community and their family background and, and the motivation behind poaching. Um, whether or not um, it was the right thing to do, there there is a motivation behind it. It must have been a bit tricky at first to convince them that to talk to you to allow to allow them to that you could cover them. What did you have to guarantee them something? Were they open to your to to, to giving you access to what they were doing? Would you go out and? watch them or, or, or be with them when they stole trees? No, no, I didn't uh, go out into the forest with them. Um, the, all of those uh, scenes were recreated through interviewing. Uh, I would say that um, I actually don't think a lot of them had been asked <laughs> for their point of view before. Uh, so the fact that I asked uh, was, I think, appreciated uh, rather than writing a book without their perspective. And, and I spent time in Oric in Northern California and I approached them, you know, very openly and said, I'm writing about. Yeah, Oric is a California mm. Redwood Coast and it's a particular. It is. Uh, an area with some, I mean, I live in San Francisco, so we think of it as an area with beautiful trees, although I'm going to, having had this conversation and looked at your book, I'm going to think of it slightly differently now. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's what they call a gateway town. So it's right on the southern edge of the town. It is, you know, you're, you drive through Oric and then immediately you're in the actual national park. So, um, and it used to be a logging town. And just over the years, that economy was decimated through various kind of policy decisions, as well as environmental decisions, as well as uh, the decisions of logging companies to over overlog the area and get out really quickly without thinking about the impacts on community. So the logging, the logging companies, as one would expect, don't come out of this looking very good. And that's mm -hmm. no great surprise. But t give me a, a sort of a 
a generalized profile of a tree thief and, and why you're arguing in this book that we need to think a little bit more carefully and a bit more uh, in, a, in, a, in a more subtle way about what these people are doing and why they're doing it and why essentially, and maybe I'm putting words into your mouth, they're almost being forced into doing it. I think that um, it's funny that you mentioned that because I thought a lot about that word force, you know, and, and where the force is coming from and, and if it's actually fair to say that. Uh, I, I don't know if I believe that they're being forced into doing it, but I do understand to a bit more of a degree now why it might seem like a very accessible option. And so most tree thieves are men, certainly. They, in the Pacific Northwest, they tend to live in small rural areas that had logging industries. Um, in the mid 20th century in particular, there was there were booms in that part of the world. Um, and many small towns were just completely operating off of logging company and mill incomes. And they were they were populated by people that worked in logging and worked at mills and worked in trucking to, to move the logs back and forth. The three poachers that I profile in the book, they all have roots in those communities. To various extents, those roots are in the logging industry. Two of them quite, quite a bit. Uh, the third one, not so much. Um, and they all felt that logging was what they were going to do. When they graduated high school, they were all, you know, at this point, kind of middle-aged. And so when the National Park was expanded in 1978, the Redwoods National Park, um, and a lot of logging stopped at that point, um, a certain amount of resentment came in that, uh, you know, if the park hadn't done this, I would have work here in this town where I grew up doing what my dad did, what my dad's dad did. And at the same time, this region was going through, I mean, that that's one town and it's happening to dozens in the same region. And the fallout from that was just kind of a vast amount of economic disenfranchisement. And what we see now is a lot of towns really struggling to um, maintain their tax base and therefore maintain their services and, and how the town operates and also increase drug use. And so when I first started reporting the story, a fair number of researchers would say to me, um, the type of people that, that like the reason why we have poaching here and the people that do poaching are usually meth addicts. Um, and this is a way to get quick a quick buck and they know how to use the equipment. They know exactly who to take it to because it's their community and they know who run the mills. And that's why this happens. And my reporting did kind of bear out that a lot, a lot of folks um, that take burls are also kind of struggling with drug mis misuse and kind of inconsistently housed, really uh, have, a, have a foundation of poverty in that way. You use the word, interestingly, roots. You say that these people have roots in the community. The trees, of mm -hmm. course, have roots in the land. Are, are we, should we, do we need to evaluate, perhaps even quantify these different kinds of roots, figuring out which we think are more important? Or I think perhaps maybe considering how they might work together. Um, there are a few quotes in the book that always stand out to me, which is one poacher saying, I think I'd actually be for the park if it if it hadn't 
kind of affected my family in the way that it did. And another poacher saying, you know, it's not as if um, the rangers in this region are actually from here. And it, it's their employment at the park is not the good jobs at the park are not coming from this town. And there was a, you know, there was an implication there that they're just not wanted, you know. Um, is that and so I, there are people that work uh, at the park that are from there. The law enforcement officers tend not to come from there. There are kind of two different streams of, of ways that you can work at a national park. One is the public face, uh, educational programs, biodiversity work, all of that kind of great stuff. Um, and then there's also the, the ranger aspect as well. So there's a law enforcement stream. What would happen, um, or what does happen to the tree thieves if they're caught? Is it a mm-hmm. um, would they would they end up in jail? Is it a is it a criminal? Is it considered a criminal act? Uh, yes, because uh, national parks are a federal are are national land, uh, so it is theft from the federal government. So in most cases, they are arrested, taken into the nearest courthouse charged booked um, and if they have bail they can they can leave until their court date uh, or if not they're they're in jail in most cases however i will like that that would be the first step often uh, by the time that a, a a thief is convicted if they get to that point it'll be a financial penalty uh, community service that type of punishment as opposed to many months in jail in a funny kind of way, this sort of mirrors debates about gentrification. So in poor neighborhoods of town, the wealthy move in. Yep. Someone steals from a house and they say, well, you took our real estate. You took our jobs. I have a right to take from you. At what point does your argument become slightly absurd? <laughs> yeah. I mean, at what point do you just can you use this argument to justify any kind of criminality? I think that if the if it didn't come with some some pointed and I think good suggestions uh, from some from the poachers that I spoke to, I could I could see this argument that it just could unravel and all of a sudden you're you're arguing that there should be no such thing as private property, you know, which I I don't agree, uh, but I do think that understanding their perspective is useful. What do you think needs to change? Should should these people be given jobs? Should we be less um, anal, if you like, about cutting trees down? Should we allow poaching? Should it be legitimate in a in a common sense? No, I don't think about. I don't. I don't think that allowing it is the way forward. But I do think that um, considering some some other layers around training opportunities. Who gets trained to work in the park? Uh, when it when it comes time to make decisions around the park management, who are involved in those talks, where are they coming from, um, being more open with communities around what the park actually means and how actually in the national park there is logging and, and perhaps the loggers that do that logging should come from the surrounding area. I think that there are solutions in that way that make it more community run. Lindsay, do you think we should be forcing ourselves to even rethink our relationship with the environment? Um, 
yesterday I had an interesting interview with a historian, a Western historian, Mark Lee Gardner. It's a book about the European colonialization of, of the West and the destruction mm-hmm. of uh, indigenous communities. The title is called uh, The Earth is All That Lasts, and it presents uh, the indigenous Americans as having a different relationship mm-hmm. with nature as mm-hmm. the white European settlers who tended to be more utilitarian, more acquisitive. Do we need to rethink that relationship? Can we learn something perhaps from indigenous native, uh, from native Americans who were here before the Europeans showed up? Um, is oh, that yeah. in a sense what you're writing about in your book? Yeah, I think I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I do think that that is what needs to happen. At the beginning of the book, I, I talk a little bit about how redwoods were seen as uh, a provider uh, for the indigenous peoples that lived in this region of California, um, and that they, you know, their wood was often used, but the the full tree not fully logged, um, and that the bark was used for housing and the wood was used for housing, but that the tree remained standing and it was seen as this reciprocal rela- relationship. Um, and I, so I do think that that is something that uh, needs a bit more balance in our current discourse that you can use and still uh, preserve and conserve at the same time. I wonder if our iconography or our literature, our, our, lex, our lexigram, our lexicology, if there's such a word, are, are wrong. I did a show last year, a very brilliant young uh, English writer, Lucy Jones, on the relationship between the natural world and the human psyche. She suggests that separation from nature makes us anxious. It contributes to uh, psychological illness. Mm -hmm. The title of her book is Losing Eden, um, which is appropriately Christian, I guess. I'm not sure how literally she meant it. Do we need to rethink nature as Eden? Is that one of the problems here? And just to confirm, you mean rethinking it as, well, as not Christian, yeah, or, as this, this sort of this this first point, this or, this original story, which is in a way, I think, what you're challenging. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I, I think when you consider, and again, I'll just focus this on Northern California because so much of the book right. is set there. Well, but uh, I think the early. 20th century that the kind of early Save the Redwoods history is all based around that. And it, you know, it tends to be focused on a kind of settler, white male, uh, you're right, connected to, to faith perception of what nature should be and why logging was wrong. So as opposed to seeing kind of vast amounts of logging as wrong because it was a huge amount of kind of capitalistic desire and extraction, but to see it as wrong because this was a connection to God, that may not have been the correct uh, pathway. About capitalism, um, uh, I I did a show last week with uh, so many shows on the environment with uh, Bob Keefe. Um, He Mm -hmm. runs, uh, he he has a new book out, Climate Nomics, Washington, Wall Street, and the Economic Battle to Save Our Planet. Um, his conclusion is we need more capitalism. We need more <laughs> innovation. I'm not sure I necessarily agree with him. What no. did you find from uh, researching uh, tree thieves about the role of capitalism in preserving, protecting nature and, and respecting our, our natural mm. habitat? 
that it is antithetical to it. Um, that at times when, um, that at key moments in the in conservation history in, in Northern California and in the Pacific Northwest, when there were arguments being made by environmentalists that we need to we need to cut down on clear clear uh, clear cut logging because the the northern spotted owl is endangered, rather than also agreeing from the perspective of if we if we cut down on clear cut logging, we'll have a more consistent and fair economy with less peaks and less busts, uh, you know, everyone will have kind of a longer uh, guaranteed employment in this environment that they love in the towns that they love, that that was completely shirked in order just to, to get in and get out and get as much as possible. I think in the in the early 80s or mid 80s in Northern California, what ended up happening was a, a huge business tycoon from Houston, who was not from the area bought the biggest logging firm there, and just gutted their resource, gutted their assets, took out as much old growth as they could and got out um, rather than managing it for the long term. And that was motivated by just the kind of basic greed that we, that is inherent to that capitalism now. Seems to me, Lindsay, that in a way, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the novel by Richard Powers, Bewilderment, an excellent novel about the environment. In a way, in your own non-fictional way, just as Powers is trying to encourage a degree of bewilderment on our part of his reader in a fictional way towards the environment, you're doing the same in a non-fictional way. You're, Thank you're, you. You're encouraging bewilderment, which is not a bad sentiment, rather than this rather simplistic good versus evil narrative yeah. that dominated the environmental movement. Yeah, because I think that we have seen how poorly that can end up now, 20 years on, where even though it might seem small that there are a couple hundred timber poachers in the Pacific Northwest that felt so alienated that they that they want to get back uh, against the federal government and national parks and, and preservation and all of that, I do think that that's really important that we consider how perhaps a lack of true listening and true understanding at that point led to this. Lindsay, finally, what would you say to guys like myself, San Francisco, we live here and occasionally we drive up to Oric to look at the trees. <laughs> yeah. Should we not come? Do we need to be a little bit more thoughtful in terms of this revering of, of, of nature, of yeah. trees, of, of, of nature, of the world? Do we need to think more about uh, the complexity of our socioeconomic architecture in places well, like Auric, which are relatively poor. Oh, yeah. I, I do think you should go. I would definitely say don't. No, I'm a, I get your permission. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't live there. So, <laughs> no, I think you should go. Um, but I think that uh, if you find yourself having uh, perhaps uncharitable thoughts to the state of the town, for instance, or... Uh, broad sweeping kind of judgments against what's going on up there and, and the way that the economic situation looks uh, that you take a beat and think about why that might be. Well, it's good stuff, Lindsay. I think it's always Thank nice you. to have a book that challenges what we all think. All too often these books all say the same thing and, and you're saying something different. I mean, you're still, I think, again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I still see you as an environmentalist. 
I mean, you're not in favor of the destruction of the environment, are you? No, no, no. But I do. Yeah. It's interesting to kind of toe that line, especially now that we're in the stage of having this book out and, and trying to think about, like, how do I position myself? Right. And certainly I'm not arguing that this poaching is OK. Um, but I don't think that we stop any crime by just focusing on the crime itself. I think it has to be much deeper. Um, and there's there's there are other po like very educated people in the world of poaching that would argue the same thing. I think of Rory Young, who um, unfortunately passed away or was I shouldn't say that he was murdered while while doing anti poaching work. Um, and his his work, uh, his his guidebook that he that he authored and gets sent around the world to guide rangers on how to best deal with this it, it says flat out like poaching will not stop until we handle the socioeconomic drivers behind it what book is that uh, i know uh it's I mean, a pamphlet <laughs> it's a it's a pamphlet that he wrote um and it, it's literally a training uh a training module uh i could i could give it a quick google if you don't mind me typing well we it. can i'm sure our audience will look it up anything okay. else i mean your, your book is much needed and no, oh, thank you. It's interesting to have another point of view, Tree Thieves, Crime and Survival in North America's Woods. Uh, it's already getting a lot of visibility, an excellent review in the New York Times. Congratulations on the easy place either to be reviewed or get a good review. So congratulations on that, Lindsay. Uh, what what else you. should people be reading? Oh, yeah. So your new book I was, and that uh, pamphlet you mentioned. I was pleased that you that you asked that question. So I have a couple suggestions. Um, and as we were talking, I thought of another one. So uh, the Atlantic magazine and apologies because I don't remember the author. Uh, so if they're listening, I apologize. I'm not trying to take it away from you. But there was a cover story that was arguing for all national parks to be uh, bequeathed to tribal management. And that was a mm, really great argument. And so definitely seek that one out. Um, I've been reading Sarah Schulman's Let the Record Show, uh, which is an oral history of the uh, AIDS activism movement of the 80s, I guess, 80s and 90s, that's particularly the organization ACT UP. Um, and as an oral historian, it's just, it, it'll blow your mind. It's also about 800 pages. So uh, when you, <laughs> it's taken well, you me many dip months. Out in, in and out. I'm currently reading an oral history of 9-11 uh, and, and when they're well done, they're, they're very powerful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So this is, this is really, really worth your time. Um, I also am an avid reader of history, as you might imagine. So I just kind of got around to E.P. Thompson's William Morris biography, which is also very heavy and long, but very yeah, good. And I think E.P. Thompson, not that he's around anymore, but I think he might rather admire what you're saying as a man very much in favor of the, the working well, you... class, certainly on, on the traditional left. It's, it's an interesting argument. Well, thank you. And I will, uh, I will now consider that the highlight of my career because I really like him. So that's quite a compliment for me. Thank you. <laughs>